All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. It's good to see everyone and to worship together with you. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John, as uh, we are wont to do when I get a chance to preach. And uh, we find ourselves at the very end of chapter 12, and we're going to look at that closing section there in uh, verses 37 to 50. So while you're turning there, uh, I'll just make a few preliminary uh, comments. And that is, you know, in today's passage, uh, we're going to see Jesus' public ministry come to a close with his final public discourse. So we're going to take a look at that in just a minute. But John addresses an issue that has reoccurred throughout his gospel, and that is the widespread unbelief of the Jewish people. Now, this is certainly an issue because the Jews were the people of God. They still are the people of God. And uh, uh, the Messiah and his kingdom were promised to them as a people. So think about it from the perspective of the first century, especially as a Jew living in that day or even one of John's readers. What can account for Jewish rejection of Jesus? But then even for us, as we look at it today, that has lasted up until our day today, 21st century, right? So this doesn't seem, at least from you know, a Jewish perspective, it, it, it doesn't seem to fit the Old Testament expectation you know, of the promises that are, uh, that are given to the Jewish people, the Davidic covenant promises in particular. But you know, as John points out in today's passage, um, this really shouldn't be unexpected. There is actually a strain of prophetic teaching in the Old Testament, and it's not hidden, it's, it's in quite a few places, that predicts widespread Jewish unbelief. And so even this uh, it was part of God's plan. It is part of God's plan. And as we know from Old Testament history, time and time again, the Israelites were chastised for their rejection of the messengers that God sent to them. And it certainly culminates, doesn't it, in the ministry of Jesus. Well, with that said, I'd like to read the passage for us here this morning and then pray and then take a look at uh, the passage here this morning. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and he said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin our time here this morning, we pray that we would hone in on, what, on the words of Jesus. And Lord, we know that just hearing the words of Jesus really convicts our heart, sanctifies our soul, and gives us uh, a reorientation of, of our purpose. And Lord, as we read the scripture here this morning, let it, uh, let it cause introspection, help us to, to really meet the purposes that you have for us here this morning as we go through this text. Use us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost forgot the clicker here, huh? Okay. So here this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, two sections before we jump into this. Uh, really, it's pretty easy to follow the outline. There's really only two sections here. Number one is uh, Jewish unbelief in 37 to 43. And then two, Jesus sent to be the Savior in verses 44 to 50. So we're going to take a look at this first section here of Jewish Unbelief. Look there at verse 37 with me. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, here we see the Israelites in Jesus' day who are really mimicking the Israelites in ancient times, right? There's a lot of uh, continuity there. And that is marked by unbelief. Now, you remember, despite the miraculous nature of God's deliverance from Egypt and the supernatural provisions uh, for them, that generation of Israelites were constantly marked by unbelief. It's hard to believe, right? I mean, with all that they had experienced and seen. You know, this led Moses to say this to his generation. Here's what his evaluation was. He says, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw. And notice what he says here, the signs and those great wonders. And there was a lot of signs and great wonders, right? None greater than the, uh, you know, crossing the Red Sea. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That's Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 to 4. So John makes it clear that if evidence were the deciding factor, there was more than enough present for the Jewish people to believe. Now, if there was that much evidence in you know, Moses' day and they didn't believe, how much more in Jesus' day where the Son of God is present and the people don't believe. You, you remember, as you think of where we are in the Gospel of John, some of these people were present when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave in chapter 12, verse 17. Now, to think about it for yourself. Could Jesus have done a greater miracle than that? You know, I, I can't imagine what could have topped raising somebody from the dead, right? But despite this clear-cut evidence, what do we see? The people persisted in unbelief. You know, this is a good reminder 
that miracles aren't sufficient to change an unbeliever's heart in and of themselves, right? Only God can do that. You know, if God would just come down right now, then I would believe, right? Oh, if God could lift this car in the air, then, then I would believe, right? Oh, if God could do this, if God could do that, I would just believe. No, you probably wouldn't. You'd have an explanation as to why those things happen naturally, right? Or the coincidence of it. it, it it's, it's simplistic to think miracles change the unbeliever's hearts. You know, does God use miracles to do that at times? Yeah, he does. But we shouldn't be so simplistic to think that an unbeliever's heart just needs information or it just needs the supernatural, the miraculous, and then he's going to become an instant convert for Christ. You know, this is what's defective, by the way, about, you know, some, some charismatics, not all, but some who have ad- adopted the power evangelism paradigm. I, I was, you know, grew up in a church that taught power evangelism. And the idea of power evangelism was that the gospel uh, should always be accompanied by miracles, signs, and wonders because miracles will be used by God to open the heart of the unbeliever. Well, you know, that, that's never been the case because of a pretty important factor that we see biblically, and that is sin has blinded our eyes and we are all dead in our trespasses and sin, as Ephesians 2.1 aptly tells us. And that's why it takes an act of God to change our very natures. John now goes on to explain further why then there was such widespread rejection of Jesus. Look there in verse 38 with me. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So, you know, how do you ultimately explain then the reason for such widespread unbelief amongst the Jews? Well, the biblical answer is that this extensive rejection of Jesus as the Messiah was actually prophesied in Isaiah 53, 1. And so this makes it an absolute certainty because God's word never fails. Or to put it another way, they didn't believe because they could not believe. Now, as we will see, okay, and so I, w- I want you to stay with me here as we walk through this, as we will see, this doesn't mean that God forced them to unbelief. God never forces us to unbelief in order to fulfill this prophecy, right? So, hey, I made this prophecy, and so now I've got to force everyone to not believe in me, right? But it does mean that unbelief does have its place in God's plan. You know, in its its original context, Isaiah 53, 1 is referring to the servant of the Lord, someone who was exalted by God, but rejected by the people, And as many of you already know, the servant of the Lord is prophesied to suffer untold agony. He would have mankind's sin upon him. He would eventually be killed, but as uh, 52.10 says, he would have his years prolonged after his death. I wonder who this was talking about. Who, Who in the world could Isaiah 52 and 53 be talking about? 
Well, I want you to think about how Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in John's day. Isaiah's servant of the Lord is identified as Jesus, and his message and his signs have been rejected. By the way, that's the nuance with the arm of the Lord. That's an Old Testament expression that refers to God's power. So we'll talk about this uh, some more in just a minute, but just as Isaiah's message was rejected by the Jews of his own day, the same is true of Jesus in his day. Verses 39 to 40, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So John is providing the reason why God's covenant people didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah. But the reason is shocking and unsatisfying for many because it seems to suggest that God is the reason why they didn't believe uh, because he hardened their hearts. We reason then, as we read passages like this, that even if the Jews wanted to believe, they wouldn't be able to because God would prevent it in order to preserve this prophecy from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. And so we think to ourselves, well, how in the world then can God be just if something like this is true? How can I worship a God who forces his people or forces a people to not believe in himself? How can he be just if this is really true? So, you know, this is a, this is a hard verse. I don't mean to make light of it. it. It is a hard verse for many Christians to accept at face value. So what are the options? Well, they, they either avoid passages like this. Let's just pretend they're not there. Let's skip over them. Let's, you know, do our message. And then when it comes, we just read it, but we're not, we'll not talk about it. Uh, or they seek for an alternate way to explain away what is the obvious meaning of the text. Let me just give you a word of caution when we come uh, to hard passages like this in the scripture. You know, we, we don't want to be guilty of conforming scriptures to our beliefs, right? So every time we find something difficult in them, we say, well, that can't be true. Why can't it be true? Because that's, that contradicts my conception of God. Well, the presupposition there is your conception of God is true, right? What we need to do is we need to find out what the scripture says, and if it contradicts how our views of God are, then what do we need to do? We need to change our beliefs. So we, we, have to, we, we have to get out of the habit of whenever we see something we don't like, that we change the scripture to reflect our beliefs rather than the other way around. Uh, I'm sad to say that that is the trend in much of Christianity today, but it is not faithful to our, to our Lord's uh, teachings. Now, getting back then to, to talking about this passage, whenever we see strong statements concerning God's sovereignty over human affairs, like here, there are usually other statements that also stress human responsibility as well, and that's the case here. I mean, we read one of them in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Verse 43, uh, we're going to talk about this as well, 
when we get there, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And each of those highlights the sinful, well, that one highlights the sinful reason as to why some of the Pharisees rejected him. But even verse 37, more broadly than that, the people. But for, for now, let's focus on John's commentary. John is making a theological argument that the Jewish people were not only guilty of unbelief, Scripture predicted as much, and therefore, in a very real sense, they couldn't believe. Now, does this let the Jews off the hook then in saying that that it's not their fault that they don't believe because they couldn't believe? Well, let's even put it in today's context for ourselves. Is this true today? That there are many people in the world that can't believe due to no fault of their own because God has arbitrarily hardened their heart so that they can't believe. You know, I just minding my own business one day and God just for no reason zapped me with hardness of heart and blindness of eyes so that I can't believe in him. Is that how we are to think of what God has done today and what God has done then? You know, in both cases, the answer is no. The Bible never excuses human responsibility for sin and unbelief. So what do we have going on here? Well, John is describing what we call a divine judicial hardening of their hearts, which means that this is a just judgment against them. Now, what do we mean by that? When we talk about a divine judicial hardening, what are we talking about? Well, I want to back up first to Isaiah's ministry, because this is where the passages that come from, they come out of Isaiah, uh, where this, uh, uh, so we can kind of see the context of what John is referring to. So if we'll just take a detour for just a minute, and literally just a, a minute or so, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6, and let me show you something here that will help us in our passage here today. Isaiah chapter 6, let me read to you what's going on. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So here we have this vision, right? Isaiah's seeing this. Who do we have sitting on the throne there? The Lord, right? So it's a, it's a vision of, of the Lord on his throne. Notice the, the, the details. Above in verse 2 stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Isn't it interesting? Six wings, four uh, are used for worship. Three, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah speaks in verse 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah feels the weight of his sin. He, he feels condemned, even though here, here as a prophet of God, you know, speaking on his behalf, all he could see is his sin. So he cries out in repentance after this vision of the holy God sitting on his throne, the Yahweh of hosts. 
Then, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay, so that kind of gives us the context there in Isaiah 6 of what John is alluding to here in John chapter 12. So back in Isaiah 6, right, after the prophet had repented and we read that portion where the tongs uh, or where the charcoal was put on his on his lips um, he's commissioned by God to take his message to his people Israel but here's the rub Isaiah is to take on this calling knowing full well that he is going to be scorned and rejected by the very people that he is sent to I mean, how's that for encouragement, right? You're going to be scorned and rejected by the people. But you volunteered. You said, send me, right? So Isaiah will preach to a people not only knowing that the results will be negative, but that his preaching will often be the very cause of their negativity because they will hate what he's saying. You know, recently I was asked to speak at a, at a men's retreat, which I agreed to do. Now, can you imagine that the pastor who, in, who you know, uh, invited me, he informs me that, hey, look, Garrett, you know, um, what do you want to speak on? Well, I think I'm going to speak on this. Well, that's cool because I, I just want to let you know, no matter what topic you speak on, none of my men are going to respond well to your message. Um, they're probably going to be pretty mad at you by the time you're done. But um, thanks for coming, right? You know, um, how, how excited do you think I'm going to feel to go into an atmosphere of that kind of hostility, right? Do you think I'm going to be really encouraged to want to preach in a, in a you know, context like that? This is Isaiah's calling to ministry, to preach a, mi- a message to his people that will actually be the cause and the means of them hardening their heart to God. So understand, when the scripture refers to God's judicial hardening of a people, which comes up on more than one occasion, if you remember Romans 9 to 11 dealt with this as well, it is never presented as a random act of God bullying morally neutral people that has no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. That's never the case. I just feel like picking on someone to harden their heart for no reason whatsoever. Look, God doesn't blind people or harden their hearts against their will as if he takes pleasure in overpowering them. No, as we see in scripture, their own sinful choices is what has brought them to this. Remember, we're all born in trespasses and sins that blind us cause us to hate the things of the Lord. 
But like in John's context, we often see that the occasion for this blindness and this hardening of heart is, as Carson has pointed out, a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. Look, what we need to realize is that it's no small thing to keep on resisting God's word and his call to repentance. You know, if it continues, you know, you may be on the road to hardening your heart and inviting God's judgment to harden it in compliance with your will. This is what happened with the Jews then, and it can happen today for those who continue in unbelief, ignoring God's warnings and his calls for repentance. You know, God will never arbitrarily inject hatred into your heart, inject it for himself, you know, like I'm going to put a dose of hatred for God in you. But you know what? He can withdraw his grace from you. And it may very well be too late when that happens. We must understand that evil people don't frustrate God's will, but they are accomplishing it through their own unbelief. We have to remember God is always in control. You know, obviously, the opposite to this obstinate resistance of God's word is reflected in the final statement about spiritually seeing and understanding with one's heart in order to be spiritually healed. We'll talk about the other side of that in a minute. But that takes us to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You know, the significance of this statement cannot be overstated. The Apostle John specifically states that Isaiah said the things that he did in Isaiah 6. And we looked at that passage, right? Because, notice what he says here, he saw his glory and spoke about him. Now, who does the masculine pronouns belong to, the, the his and the him? Well, there's not much disagreement about this. The most obvious way to understand the pronoun is that it goes back to verse 37, right? That's what started this whole thing, this quotation. And that refers to who? To Jesus. That's why the NIV, by the way, doesn't even put the pronoun in there. It just supplies the name Jesus to make the connection explicit in case you missed it. So John is making a significant statement about who Isaiah saw back in chapter 6. Now, although this wasn't revealed back in Old Testament times, the one whom Isaiah saw seated on the throne in his vision, the Yahweh of hosts, who was it? It was really a pre-incarnate vision of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. So John is equating the king on his throne, the Yahweh of hosts in Isaiah 6-5 with Jesus. So this is an unambiguous, clear-as-day reference to Jesus' deity. Jesus of Nazareth and Yahweh in the Old Testament are being equated by the Apostle John. Now, all of this fits so neatly 
into John's gospel. I I want you just to think a string of verses from the gospel of John. You can't go one verse in John's gospel, John uh, 1.1, until you read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we're told from the very outset that the word was there with God from before the beginning of time, making him then distinct from God, and yet in the very next breath, right, because he's with God, but yet in the very next breath, we're told that he was God. And that introduces us in the very first verse of John to the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is such a thing as plurality within the Godhead, that their monotheism is true, and the Old Testament took a lot of pains to point that out, but there is plurality within that monotheism. But then we're given the identity of the word later in the chapter. Remember this? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Ah, glory. Like in Isaiah 6. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth in verse 14 of chapter 1. But you know what? Between 1-1 and verse 14, sandwiched in between these two statements is verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, Jesus was with God before the creation of the world. He was the Father's agent of creating everything, the world and everything in it. He was God himself, and yet he became a human being and dwelt amongst his creation. So you couple those statements with the one about him being the one who Isaiah saw back in chapter 6, and we realize something very important. When we read the Old Testament, when God appears to mankind, it was all, in all likelihood the Word, God's Son, whom human beings were interacting with. So John pulls back the curtain and says, look, Jesus, in a pre-incarnate form, was always there. So all this to say that Isaiah saw Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory in Isaiah 6, and he spoke of him in this well-known event. So John is making the connection between Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New, and that it was actually then, here's the connection, Jesus himself who was responsible for this judicial hardening that is mentioned in verses 39 to 40. So as the people continued to see the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Jesus did, and they still resisted believing in him, guess what happened? Their hearts became hard, and Jesus, in response, hardened their hearts as well, right? So he become, the, the preaching the miracles, the ministry becomes the means to the hardening as well as the, the judicial judgment of it as well. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
Now, after saying all that, you might be tempted to think that the statements made about the Jews' rejection of Jesus in verses 37 to 41 is absolute, as if none of the people believed that Jesus was really the Messiah. But here we find out that really wasn't the case. Jesus' miracles were so compelling, so undeniable, that, notice, many of the Jewish authorities, that's a reference to the members of the Sanhedrin, Pharisees and Sadducees, who believed that he really was who he said he was. There were really Pharisees and Sadducees who got it, who really thought he really was who he said he was. But you know what? They would not admit that out loud for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. You know, this verse is significant because it helps us to see the difference between a true saving belief in Jesus over against a shallow, merely intellectual belief in Jesus that doesn't save anyone. You know, true saving belief, true saving faith causes one to turn away from his sin and all that he trusts in in order to surrender his life to Jesus. True saving faith is life transforming. It's a new birth that enables one to be willing to forsake all in order to follow Jesus. True saving faith acknowledges Jesus' lordship over your life and your submission to his will instead of your own, which was always the case. True saving faith is unashamed of Jesus, boldly confessing him as the Messiah, your savior and Lord. A mere intellectual faith, on the other hand, is really just that. It resides in the mind, but it really doesn't do much more than that. It it, it doesn't impact your life. It doesn't impact your relationship with Jesus. It really doesn't affect the quality of your life. So even though many of these Jewish leaders actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they didn't have the courage to act on that belief because they feared the displeasure of the Pharisees who had already gone on record to condemn Jesus. And you remember in the Gospel of John, they're already plotting to have him murdered, right? So it was understood that to buck against the majority opinion about Jesus would amount to being put out of the synagogue, meaning you would be excommunicated from the Jewish community from both the religious and the social realm. And you know what? That was an extremely effective deterrent. No Jew would have wanted to be exiled from his community. So this sanction would have been enough for a person, a Jewish person, to just go along with the crowd rather than to take a stand for what you really believe. I mean, that's not too hard for us to understand. I mean, isn't this true today to a lesser degree? I mean, we're not put out of the synagogue, obviously, but um, people don't want to be exiled from their social or their family community either, right? Do you want to lose your entire friend group? People don't want to lose their friend group. Do they want to be kicked out of their family if they believe in Jesus? Because depending on the religious, you know, affiliation you have in your family, becoming a Christian might be you know, the right boot of fellowship out of, out of your family, right? Um, people today, just like then, just like at all times, 
They want to be accepted, right? They want to be liked. They want to be accepted. And Christianity threatens that security. Verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Here's here's where the issue was for the Jewish leaders then, and here's where it is today as well. Either you choose the glory that comes from other human beings as the highest good, or you choose the glory that comes from God as the highest good, and these two choices are diametrically opposed to one another. Look, if you want to choose the praise and the accolades that come from men as your end-all, be-all, then you cannot and will not be able to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I mean, think about it. This is what keeps people from forsaking all and following Jesus today, right? They love and crave the praise and the glory that come from other human beings more than anything else in this world, even above the praise and glory that comes from God himself. They love to hear the praises of man. They love to be adored, envied, and respected. They want to be the ones that everyone is talking about. They want to go viral, right? They want a ton of likes. They want to be the one everyone aspires to be like. The one who's made it and therefore successful in the eyes of his peers. Heaven forbid that people might ridicule or laugh at them for what they believe. And of course, persecution must be avoided at all costs because that is the greatest evil. Everyone's afraid of being canceled, right? I don't want to be canceled. Maybe this describes some of you who are sitting here this morning. You actually believe that Jesus is who he says he was, but you're afraid to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life because of what it will cost you. You know, what would people think? I mean, I've I've had close friends that uh, were at this place that uh, believed the same things that I believed about Jesus. Check off all the boxes about uh, who he was and what he came to do, but would be the first to tell you that, uh, that they're not a Christian because they understood the cost involved, what it would mean to give up control, autonomy. You know, the fear of man is controlling. It's paralyzing, really. And as J.C. Ryle pointed out, nothing seems so difficult to overcome as the desire of pleasing man, keeping in with man, and retaining man's praise, unquote. That glory for man, if this describes you, will be your reward, but it will be temporary and ultimately unsatisfying. It will provide absolutely no benefit, no cover, no protection on Judgment Day. You know, on the bright side, you know, both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are probably two examples of Jewish leaders who believed in Jesus but allowed fear to keep them quiet. But, you know, that probably wasn't the end of the story for either of these two men because we know that after Jesus died, 
we see them in this gospel, in chapter 19, verses 38 to 39, both teaming up to give Jesus a proper burial, suggesting that now they're willing to come out. They're willing to stop hiding what they really believe. And uh, now now maybe it suggests that they desire the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. You know, it's interesting. This isn't gospel. This is just uh, tradition. It's extra biblical. But uh, some strands of Christian tradition suggest that both of those men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, became followers of Christ. I don't know if that's true, but maybe we'll see them in heaven one day. You know what? The cost of discipleship is high. Look, the cost of following Christ, you know what the cost is? Your entire life. You can't love man's glory more than God's glory and be Christ's disciple. He's calling you to an undivided devotion. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 24? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then what? Follow me. It's costly to follow Christ. But you know what? The blessings and the rewards that flow out of that relationship far exceeds the cost, right? But many people are forfeiting because of the cost. All right, so we looked at Jewish unbelief. We're now gonna take a look at part two where Jesus was sent to be the savior. Let's look with me here in uh, verses uh, 44 to 45. And Jesus cried out and he said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. We now enter the concluding paragraph of the first major section of John's gospel that closes, as I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus' public ministry. Now, if what Jesus says in this closing paragraph sounds familiar to you, that's a good thing because that means you've been paying attention because it's basically an overview of what has been taught up until this point in John's gospel. Since verse 37, John has been providing his commentary on the nature of Jewish unbelief and how this was prophesied even back in Isaiah. Well, now he returns back to Jesus's message. Now, we haven't seen Jesus for a while. Um, The last time we saw Jesus, he was hiding himself in verse 36. That was the verse right before Uh, today's message began, and we are presented now with his final challenge to the people to believe in himself. Uh, By the way, did this discourse take place on a different occasion, possibly a different day? That's probably the case. We're not, you know, told, Um, but uh, what we do know is that this is one of the last discourses of his public ministry. And you know, you could tell an importance by the way in which the message is given, right? Like if, uh, you know, if someone's dying, right, you don't say, help, help, come help me. I need help. Someone call the doctor, right? The intensity of the message kind of is, is the tone, right? Um, you, you express how important it is by how loud you, you give the message. That's, 
the same thing that we have here. There is intensity in, this, in, in Jesus' words uh, in which he gave this impassioned address, and that's underlined by the fact that he cried out these words. That's a term, by the way, that refers to loud shouting, even screaming at times. So obviously, he wanted to get the attention of his audience because what he had to say was very important. So, you know, for all of us, what he, we, we need to understand what he has to say is very important, and we shouldn't miss this message. Jesus is pushing back against the idea that everything he's doing is on his own initiative and authority for the purpose of just selfish glory. He wants to make it clear to his audience that he's not a solo performer acting alone. No, he has been sent by none other than God the Father. So to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father who sent him. There is such a unity between the Father and the Son that it's impossible to believe in the Son and not to believe in the Father as well. There is an inseparable unity between the Father and the Son, even though that they are distinct persons in the Godhead. But you know what? The Father and the Son don't argue. They don't disagree. They're both on the same page because they share the very same will as God. And this is nothing new, as Jesus has said the same thing before on many, many other occasions. I'm just going to draw your attention to a couple of those occasions. And I just, I just want to highlight this uh, for you. You could turn if you want. If not, just listen, because I'm not going to... I just want you to hear it and, and highlight a few things. In John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, this is what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, now listen carefully, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? This isn't anything new. The Father sending him and to believe in the Son would receive eternal life. John chapter 8, verses 14 to 18, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but notice, I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The unity, the inseparable unity between the Father and the Son. And then lastly, John 10, verses 36 to 38. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand 
And here's the culmination. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. So look, for the Jewish leaders to reject Jesus because they claim loyalty to God alone, they're making a false dichotomy. This is the same kind of rhetoric you hear from the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door, claiming that they only worship the one true God, so they can't worship Jesus, right? That's idolatry. Sorry, that makes no sense, because Scripture presents them as a package deal. The way God the Father is ultimately honored is through faith in His Son, Jesus. So to say you worship the one without the other is a contradiction And scripture says you worship neither. As the same author of this gospel declares in his first epistle, 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. So Jesus and his father are so closely identified that Jesus can confidently declare that if you've seen him, you've seen the father who sent him. Now, just so we understand, Jesus isn't referring to a physical appearance, as to say, you know, um, the Father physically looks like me, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. It goes a lot deeper than these kind of surface ways of reading the text. It means you see past the obvious, right? That you not only see Jesus for who he is, but you also see the unbreakable connection to the Father who sent him. Why, why does Jesus have to make this, this comment? What, what, is he so, what is he yelling about? Why does he have to you know, pound the table to make this point? Well, because as Jesus transitions from his earthly ministry of public proclamation to now private preparation for his death, he wants his followers to know that their faith in him was also faith in the Father who sent them. So in other words, look, your faith could not be any more secure, right? Verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus frequently referred to himself metaphorically as a light, most famously in chapter 8, verse 12. You remember that? I am the light of the world. And then even most recently in verses 35 to 36, right before the passage we're looking at here this morning. Well, do you know what light does? It exposes darkness. All of us are in spiritual and moral darkness until Christ shines his light upon us, transforming our very nature so that we are no longer slaves to sin and no longer dwelling in darkness. This truly is the hope of the gospel that Jesus holds out to anyone. You know, no matter your situation, no matter what sin might enslave you, Christ can deliver you from your darkness. Some think uh, that they can't come to Christ until they clean themselves up first. How many times have you heard that, right? Um, And then they'll be ready to come to Christ. It doesn't work that way. You come to Christ as you are, and guess what? He will clean you up. If you could do it yourself, then you wouldn't need Christ, would you? Verses, we've got to hurry, verses 47 to 48. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus goes back to discuss those with superficial faith, like the ones described in verses 42 to 43, who hear Jesus' words but disregard them. These verses sound very similar in content to something that Jesus said back in chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So I want you to understand the nuance of what Jesus is saying. He's not saying he's never going to judge because back in chapter 5, he made the point that he is going to be the judge on Judgment Day, capital J. So what he means is that he's not going to fulfill that role right now. This would have been a needed qualification for those who accepted Jesus as the Messiah because the popular sentiment in that day was that when the Messiah comes, guess what comes with him? Vengeance, punishment, and judgment. You know, technically, that's true. When the Messiah comes, all those things do come. It's just not true yet. There's two comings, right? That's for the second coming, not the first. Jesus' primary coming, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus' primary purpose in his first coming was not one of judgment, but is one of salvation. Not to punish and conquer, but to heal and to save. So he came in his role as savior the first time, not to inflict punishment, but to be merciful. That window of mercy is open right now as we speak, but that window will not be open forever. Because if you were to reject his words of life, the inevitable outcome is one of judgment, and you will see him in that role at his second coming. In fact, the very words that you rejected, you will hear again, and it will be the same words to seal your doom on Judgment Day. This word reject means to declare invalid, to nullify, to set aside, indicating a deliberate judgment against the credibility of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So Christ's first coming was to set up a throne of grace, Whereas the second coming was to set up a throne of judgment. We're waiting for that day. We probably don't think about future reward and judgment as much as we should because we're so fixated on the present. We're so comfortable here, right? Our health is good. Our bank account is good. Our life is good. What do I think about judgment day for? What do I think about what's going to happen at the end, right? Warning. Our lives are very short, and we get old so very fast. Tell you that from a first-person perspective. The end is coming sooner than you think, and the time to live for Christ will soon be done. For those of you who don't know Jesus, who are sitting here this, this morning, don't take for granted that Judgment Day hasn't come yet. It will. I can promise you it will. Don't think that there aren't consequences for, uh, for rejecting Jesus' words. There are. Jesus' words are words of life to those who accept them and obey them. But they're also words of condemnation that will be realized on Judgment Day. Christ's words will either save you or they will condemn you. That's not something you'll hear often in our world today, right? But it is the truth. And it is something that Jesus often 
emphasizes. Verses 49 to 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, uh, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus finishes his discourse by appealing once again to the authority of his heavenly Father. Jesus' message is not an independent one. It's not humanly derived. It's one originates with the Father, and Jesus has been faithful to deliver that message verbatim. So you know what? If you reject Jesus' words on the basis that you only obey God, you are in reality rejecting the words of the Father who sent him. And as throughout John's gospel, we see that the Father's authority over the Son sending him to accomplish the redemptive mission of saving mankind from their sin and the son's unquestioned obedience in following his father's commands. That same unquestioned obedience that characterized Jesus' entire life will now culminate as we transition in the gospel to going to the cross, which will be featured uh, the next time that we come together uh, in the gospel of John. This last thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to be done. Rejecting the message of the gospel is no small thing. It progressively hardens your heart so that over time, you become more and more resistant and insensitive to the things of the Lord. And as we learn today, God can, and as a judgment, harden your heart as well, giving you exactly what you want. You want a hard heart? You got it, and then some. Listen, don't harden your heart against God and his word. Respond in repentance and obedience. Now, I say that, and this is true, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. You know, repentance and obedience don't just happen when you first become a Christian. They become the habit for the rest of your life. You know, when you do your devotions, get in the habit of reading God's word and then determining whether there is anything you need to repent of and anything you need to be obeying that you've been neglecting. And if there is, determine right then and right there that you're gonna change. You have the power to change, right? You didn't before, you do now in Christ. Do the same when you listen to sermons on Sunday morning, right? Use them as a tool for repentance and change. This active pursuit of this kind of devotion is what keeps our hearts from hardening against the Lord and inviting his judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day and the chance to read your word We pray, Lord, for those uh, amongst us who um, may be hardening their hearts before you. Convict their hearts. Cause them to see their sin and to repent before you so that they can be delivered from their state. We pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.